0: Happy New Year as we get to uh, start this new year in the Word of the Lord. If you have a Bible, you want to open to Genesis 23 for our message, A Funeral for Sarah. Now, I have to warn you, I'm doing a three-month experiment with the NLT, which is the New Living Translation. And so, the wording might be a little different than your new King James. But we're doing a little experiment, uh, knocking the dust off things. And in this passage of Scripture, we see that... um, Abraham loses his, the love of his life. Sarah passes away, and it's a, it's a brutal time. It's, it's bittersweet, isn't it, when age starts catching up with us and starts to win the battle. We're looking forward to being absent from the body and present with the Lord, but when it's the people we love, the grief of that, the sorrow of that, the loss of that is really heavy. And when you've spent your whole life with someone, it's, uh, it becomes, it's like you don't know how to function without that other person, if you've been rolling with it for a very long time in your life, in your marriage. And so we, as we look at this uh, Sarah's funeral, there's not only the grief, but then there's this really awkward funeral, funeral arrangement that he has to go through, because that's the thing. We lose somebody we love, and now we have to go into the mortuary we have to pick the casket we have to find the burial plot if you don't have all that stuff taken care of in advance if you don't have your house in order for that time and especially if it happens suddenly the last thing you want to do is to be doing price shopping i think i can get a coffin here at this mortuary or i can go to costco did you know costco sells coffins i don't know that they do i'm just joking but oh they do thank you they do For those who are in the market, just so that you know. And when it comes to the people we love and how we go through that grieving process, you know that the people that are significant in your life, without the Lord returning to take his bride home, the church, all of us are going to face that day. It's coming for every single one of us. Shall we not agree? that the statistics on death are quite impressive. One for one, 10 for 10, 100 for 100. Are you getting out of this deal? Absolutely not. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so we look at that in this whole storyline, and we want to have a, a eulogy, so to speak, for Sarah. Because, you know, when you come to a funeral, there is a eulogy that takes place, which means to speak well of someone. That's why you usually don't hear the rotten truth about people at their funerals. A lot of lies are told at funerals, if you've been around funerals as much as me. It's a little bit like the two nefarious brothers that terrorized the community, and one of them died suddenly in a a brutal drunken accident. And his brother came in, who was, these were the thugs of the town. And they came in and talked to this preacher. And the preacher knew their reputation well. They would never darkened the door of church. But he came in and said, Pastor, you're going to preach my brother's funeral. And you're going to tell everybody that shows up my brother was a saint. And the pastor said, well, I'm a man of God. I've got to tell the truth. So I'm not going to be able to do that. And he put his fist in his face and he said, preacher, I'm telling you, you tell everybody that my brother was a saint. So the pastor kind of thought... Okay, all right. So they do the funeral, and he goes, this man before you in this casket had one of the worst reputations in town. He was a terrible guy. We know all of his stories and his run-ins with the law, and he went on and on to talk about the history of this man. He said, but compared to his brother here on the front row, he was a saint. (laughs) So he pulled it off. (laughs) Well, Sarah was a saint which simply means she believed and trusted in the Lord. Look at verse 1 and 2 as we see her death. Then Sarah was 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Then Abraham mourned and wept for her. First time we see Abraham crying. He's mourning, he's weeping over Sarah who's passed away. She's 127 years of age, but we believe that these two have known each other their entire life because you see they were siblings. Uh, They had the same dad and two different moms. And so when Abraham would tell Sarah to lie for him when he was afraid that somebody might kill him to take her away from him and marry her, he was half telling the truth because they were brother and sister with the same father. It's kind of a hillbilly thing, I guess, took place back in the day. So in that dynamic, they've known each other their whole life. Then they get betrothed or they get engaged. So this would have happened when they're very young. And in that day, people would get married, you know, 15, 16 years of age for the girls. So think about it. She's 127 years of age. They could have been married for 110 years if they were married and she was 17. 110 years of marriage. And you're like, wow, I'm six years in and I don't know if I'm going to make it. But here they've been married over 100 years. She lives to be 127. Her son, who she had at the age of 90, is now 37 years of age. And as we see him get married in the following chapter, he's going to get married when he's 40. So there's a lag between his mom passing away and then three years until he marries Rebecca. But in this time of Abraham's mourning and weeping for her, you know, they don't have what we have today today to do a, basically, a slideshow of a funeral. I was just at a funeral where uh, a friend of ours passed away. She was in her 40s. She died of cancer. And knowing this couple for 20 years and just our, our hearts that went out to them, because, you see, they were high school sweethearts. They'd been together all those years, raised a couple of kids, And when you're in that environment, let alone they had been married 25 years, but imagine being married 110 years, and the memories that go on, without the Kodak moments, still your thoughts go back to that. I think of the first time that it was 46 years ago that I saw this really cute blonde who was in the sixth grade. Her name was Tammy, and she's here tonight as my wife, but that was 1978, 46 years ago. And I was with my Ken, uh, friend, Ken Agelson, and we were walking through a hallway in our, uh, it was an elementary middle school in this small um, community that we're from. And I had never seen her before, and she was standing there with her friend, Carlene. Now, the thing that was so striking is they, you know how girls mature quicker. So Tammy was 5'7". She's as tall as she is now, and she was 12. And so was her friend, Carlene. They looked like giants, because I wasn't even 5'7", and I was, you know, older than her. I was like 5'5", but not only was she very tall, but she was very beautiful, and I remember telling my friend, Ken, I I said, wow, check out these beautiful Amazon girls over here. Now, my friend Ken was a little more tapped into things. He goes, well, you know who that is? I said, I have no idea, and so he explained to me who Tammy was and uh, who her friend was, Carleen. And when you have that kind of history that you grow up together and you've known each other from, from your youth and then you're married for 37 years for us, I can't even really uh, explain my life without talking about Tammy, right? I mean, the two are just, they're, it's just intertwined together. And as I was thinking about this, I got almost kind of sappy. And uh, a little weepy because I don't want this to happen. So I guess I'm just going to have to die first. So she'll have to go through it. She's a lot tougher than me anyway. So uh, however that unfolds, but the, the sorrows real in your love life with your spouse. And as the years go by, it's hard to let go. But she passes away, doesn't tell us about the illness, it's just, she's gone. She's 127 years of age. Abraham's going to live to be 175. He's going to get remarried. He's going to have six more kids. He's going to marry a gal by the name of Keturah and have all these other boys. And he's got, like, you think about it, he, he's got another uh, 60 years of life in front of him after being married for 110 years. So he's going to jump back in with both feet. But here's the funeral arrangements. And check this out. This is like a Middle Eastern awkwardness for a number of reasons. When the people died in that day, you bury your loved ones that day. Decomposition happens fast. You have to take care of it that day. Even in third world countries today, when somebody passes away, they take care of it that day. There's no extension, there's no embalming. They don't have the money for that kind of stuff. Now, Abraham would have, he was very wealthy. But he's got to do something right away. So imagine you've just lost your loved one. You're overcome with grief. And now you have to take care of the funeral arrangements. It says in verse uh, 3, Then leaving her body, he said to the Hittite elders, Here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. The Hittites replied to Abraham, listen, my Lord, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and bury her there. No one here will refuse to help you in this way. Now, this is all happening at the city gate. This is where they took care of things in that ancient world. It's basically like the courthouse of the day. The witnesses were there. Judgments were made there. And so he's at this city gate. He's making this announcement. The who's who, the elders of the Hittites, the community are there. And Abraham says in verse seven, and Abraham bowed low before the Hittites and said, since you are willing to help me in this way, be so kind as to ask Ephron, son of Zohar, to let me buy his cave at Machpelah down at the end of his field. I will pay the full price in the presence of witnesses so I will have a permanent burial place for my family. He wants to buy a burial plot and he knows the location. It's a beautiful place, no doubt. Machpelah means double. Some most believe that there's like a double cave there, these trees around it, and then there's a field, like a pasture there. And he's, he's located this spot. He's lived there for years in, as a nomad in a tent, kind of camping around. But he's like, wow, this is the sweet spot if you're going to have a resting place for a burial plot. Now, he says to the group at the city gate, oh, if, you know, you uh, sons of the Hittites, if you will, ask Ephron. Now, Ephron is there in the hearing of them, but this is a Middle Eastern culture in the way that they go at these things. Verse 10, Ephron was sitting there among the others, and he answered Abraham as the others listened, speaking publicly before all the Hittite elders of the town. No, my lord," he said to Abraham. "Please listen to me. I will give you the field and the cave here in the presence of my people. I give it to you. Go and bury your dead. In, in great generosity, he's very magnanimous. You can have the cave. You can have the field. You can have the trees that surround it. It's, I give it to you as a present. Now they don't really mean that. This is what they would. Be, this starts the dance in Middle Eastern negotiations." Okay, so if you ever go to Israel and you go into an area where there's traders, they call this dancing, right? And they they think Americans are stupid because whatever the price tag is, we just expect to go up. We're not used to bartering. But for them, if you're really good, you know how to dance which means you go through this elaborate negotiation. You say, oh, that's too much. You're killing me. I've got grandkids to raise, and you have to start leaving the store. And they go, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And you come back, and they go, for you, for you, you, you. It's a special price today for you. And they give you this price. and nah, I don't know about that. And you go back and forth. And then finally, I've done this before. And finally, after about the fourth or fifth offer, I start walking out, okay. That's it. I'm not, you know, I'm leaving this. And they go, fine, fine. You do want you want my children to starve to death. Go ahead, leave, leave my store. And then I realize when they tell me to finally leave that I finally found their bottom price. Now I come in and go, okay. <laughs> but you have to go through this elaborate dance. They call it dancing. And if you just pay the ticket the sticker price, most Americans do, they snicker behind your back and make fun of you. So learn how to dance well, it's not very fun or pleasant to dance when you're trying to organize a funeral. And he makes this incredible generous offer, Abraham knowing these negotiations in verse 12, Abraham again bowed low before the citizens of the land and he replied to Ephron as everyone listened, no, listen to me, I will buy it from you. Let me pay the full price for the field so I can bury my dead there. Now Ephron lays out his price. Answered Abraham, my lord, please listen to me. The land is worth 400 pieces of silver, but what is that between friends? Go ahead and bury your dead. Now that would be the starting price. That would be the sticker price. Abraham, if he's going to negotiate, he would whittle that down. Maybe he gets down to, you know, 250 or something like that. But Abraham doesn't want to haggle. He doesn't want to barter. He's been there for many years. They know him. And, and this is a, a beautiful thing in a sense as just some lessons that we learn from Abraham. They've been watching his witness because he's the only one in the neighborhood that serves the true and the living God. They've been watching his life. They've been watching his marriage. They've been watching him raise his son Isaac. And it's quite a community. Everybody has, has observed his life. And at this point, Abraham, is just, he's just going to pay the price. Now, he may be, in their culture, be thought of as foolish for paying so much. But sometimes, you know, you in a sense, you're taken advantage of. He's taken advantage of in his grief. I worked in the, the cemetery funeral uh, area of life. We're about three years, and it's really sad how people get taken advantage of in their emotional grief in those circles, because, you know, in sales, they call it upselling, right? They just keep upselling, upselling, up. and they look at you like, if you want to choose the most inexpensive thing, well, I mean, it's going in the ground, which, you know, it's going to go in the ground, and, but they look at you kind of like, you know, would that really honor them, and, you know, would you, it's just like it they're not going to know they're not here they're in heaven but they have a way of of emotionally like twisting things and manipulating you and it's really tragic it is the nature of that business But Abraham says in verse 16, he agreed to Ephron's price and paid the amount. He had suggested 400 pieces of silver weighed according to the market standard. The Hittite elders witnessed the transaction. In a day and age without computers and with... Out ancient documents, though, they did have, obviously, bill of sales and various things that they had as documents. And they would put them in clay jars and have them sealed to preserve them. The, The most powerful thing was a whole bunch of witnesses at the city gate. They all witnessed this transaction. They heard the purchase price. He gave the money to them. As it says in verse 17, so Abraham bought the plot of land belonging to Ephron at Machpelah near Mamre. This included the field itself, the cave that was in it, and all the surrounding trees. It was transferred to Abraham as his permanent possession in the presence of the Hittite elders at the city gate. Now, God had promised all of the land, as far as he could see from the east to the west, the north and the south, he had promised him all the land of Israel. In a sense, Abraham could have said, hey, all this land's mine anyway. God God of the universe already gave it. Well, it wasn't quite in his possession yet, though. That was gonna happen some 400 years later when Moses brings the children of Israel to the doorstep, Joshua brings them into the promised land, but it was this promise that that land was theirs, but he didn't even own a small corner lot. He owned nothing and yet he's going to buy this piece of ground. The only ground Abraham buys while he's there as kind of putting his flag in the ground of the promises of God for him is this cave at Machpelah and the field and the trees around it. Now this is one of the most well-known or documented sites when you go. It's It's in hostile territory when you go to Israel, so you usually can't go to um, Hebron. Uh, Our guide said the last time he went to Hebron, his tour bus was shot. And so it's a thing that tourists usually don't like. Right? Get your camera out and put on your flak jacket and your helmet and let's go see this area. It's uh, not one that people see very much, but it used to be visited much more in the area of Hebron. So this place is not only the place that Sarah gets buried it's the place that Abraham gets buried it's the place that Isaac and Rebecca get buried and also Leah gets buried and then when Jacob dies in Egypt Joseph brings him all the way back to bury him in this plot this is the family bar- burial plot how many of you have family burial plots in your hometown not very many we're a transient society right this you know they moved there they died over there they're here they're there we don't live in that culture very much uh, any longer unless you grow up in this small hometown dynamic. My brother and I were just talking about this a while back, like, hey, where, where would we be buried? So our only point of reference is our, the place where we grew up. It's a place called Filer, Idaho. It's where our, um, my mom's parents are buried. That's where, uh, just a little ways away, in a neighboring town, my grandparents are buried. But that's home. But the patriarchs had an actual burial site where the people of faith were put, even though they did not see the promises of faith come about at that time. In verse 19, then Abraham buried his wife Sarah there in Canaan in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, also called Hebron. So the field and the cave were transferred from the Hittites to Abraham for use as a permanent burial place. Once again, the family plot. Well, anytime somebody passes away, you have a eulogy, usually, if, if that uh, individual knows somebody that would say some nice things about them. Have you ever thought about who's going to give your eulogy? Who's going to talk about you when you die? Have you thought, you know, I want you to know, I don't believe it's a morbid thought to think about your, your burial, your funeral. Who's going to come? Who is going to come? to say goodbye to you. Who's going to read your obituary and shed a tear? Right? Who's going to read your obituary and say, right on, it's about time. Yeah. All of us have a few people like that in our life. I was doing a funeral recently and uh, I had some quite vocal enemies that uh, were at that At that place, I don't mean vocal in the 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 funeral, but they were there, and uh, I was doing a funeral. Though we had a mutual friend, and it was uh, a little comical because when I gave that line, it was all I could do not to look at them (laughs) and think, "Oh, they would be they would be right on." (laughs) Glad Rick's finally gone. Ding dong, the witch is dead. So, but the reality is, the Bible says that a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Because truly, when we go home to be with the Lord, your name is like a wonderful fragrance. Scientists tell us that the one sense we have that is the most connected to long-term memory is our sense of smell. Isn't that interesting? Like you can walk into a room and a smell can take you back to a childhood memory, wherever it might be. And a good name is like that. It's like this beautiful aroma. And, and Sarah's life was like a beautiful aroma. I got introduced to nice-smelling candles when I got married. I called them fufu candles. And my mom never burned candles. It was something that didn't happen in the house. Our house just had a great smoker's scent. You know what I mean? You know the great smoker scent? It's interesting because both my parents were, were heavy smokers, and I had grown up. Because, you know, when you're not a smoker, but you, you live with smokers, when you, where, everywhere you go, you smell like a cigarette, correct? So I would go to school, and I'm just like this walking <laughs> cigarette everywhere. Well, But ever, I never smelled that scent because when you're in it, you're used to it. You're accustomed to it. And so I moved out of the house. I'm 19 years old. I get my own apartment. I haven't been back to the house like for a couple months. And I come into the house, and I I said, what is that smell? Because I had been gone long enough, I didn't know it smelled like an ashtray. I'm like, oh. And then I thought, I went through my whole life like a camel stud, you know, (laughs) basically smelling like a cigarette. So uh, scents obviously have, you know, they're connected to memories. But when I got married to Tammy, when I would come home, I would open the door, and, and the scent would hit me from her you know, burning a candle. And I walk into the house, and I'd look around, and if I didn't see her immediately in the room and there's a candle burning, I just blew it out. And she came in with her little hands. She said, did you blow up my candle? And I said, I most certainly did. She, I said, that thing's got to cost 10 bucks. And there you are burning. And I said, there's no power outage. <laughs> I'm a poor kid. You only burn candles when there's a power out it. You don't, you don't spend 10 bucks for a nice scent or aroma. I've been well-trained now. I like candles now personally. Because I've been trained. By, by the foo-foo candle of all foo-foo candle ladies. Now I, now I enjoy it. That's part of the training of getting married and being married for 37 years. But isn't it, it's something that, that in my early married life, coming home to that smell of a candle... It's connected to a memory of Tammy. Like that I think Tammy's home. Like if the candle's burning, Tammy's home. And you think about the people in your life that you've loved and you're invested in. When you think about them, you, you think about their laughter. You think about their smile. You think about who they are. It's like this, like, almost like this fragrance when you think about them and something strikes you and, and the memory of them. And Abraham's in the backwash of all of this. Sarah. You know, her laugh, her presence. She was a beautiful lady. But what would somebody, if they were going to write a eulogy about Sarah, what would they say? What would they say? Well, she's in the Hall of Fame of Faith, so somebody did eulogize her. And that is the author of the writer of Hebrews. And it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, telling us about Sarah, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God could keep his promise. So Sarah is eulogized. She's in the Hall of Fame of Faith because she had ginormous faith that though she was too old, she, had, she was barren, even when she was healthy before menopause, even when she was healthy, she was barren. She could not have a child. And then she goes through menopause, and then her body, as good as dead, uh, reproductively speaking. And so also Abraham, because he was 99 years of age. So an 89-year-old and a 90-year-old are going to, uh, 89-year-old and a 99-year-old are gonna be intimate and produce a baby. I mean, that's that's pretty far-fetched with no Viagra, no, nothing like that, nothing helping them out. And yet she had the faith for God to do the impossible. Something that is beautiful at somebody's funeral to be eulogized is to talk about their faith. To talk about how they trusted God, how how they believed the promises of God, how they were a godly person. And so we see this incredible godly faith to trust God for huge Impossible, miraculous things. Not only to trust God for the impossible, that an old woman that has went through menopause could get pregnant and have a child, but also that that one child, that through one man, one singular person, could populate an entire nation. The impact of her faith, the Bible gives credit to her faith and Abraham's faith, and God's plan and promises to these two to accomplish the impossible. It says in verse 12 of that passage, So a whole nation came from this one man and woman who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. So the impact that one child could then go on to populate An entire nation, the nation of Israel. It's pretty mind-blowing. What if you are in a rest home at 89 years of age, and God tells you, you're going to have a child this time next year. How would they go over? Now, we had an 89-year-old that lived next door to us. She was a firecracker. And she had come next door, and she was quite spunky, still living on her own. Her kids were trying to get her out of her house. She's like, I'm not leaving. And so she was sitting there, and I'm talking to her, and she's 89, and she's flirting with me. I mean, at the time, I was probably like 38 or something. And I'm standing there in my T-shirt. I've been doing yard work. And she looks, at, she reaches out, and she, she touches my arm. She goes, oh, look at your muscles. And my, and, and my wife walks up, kind of mystified by this whole picture. And she goes, oh, you must be his wife. Oh, your husband's so cute. She goes on and on. And then she says, I have a boyfriend. And my wife and I kind of perk up. Okay, oh, you got a boyfriend? She goes, yeah, he's 95 and his legs work in everything. <laughs> she was bragging on her boyfriend because his legs actually worked. <laughs> let alone pulling off, getting pregnant and having a baby. Okay. So to think of two senior citizens in a rest home that are just a step away from the grave getting pregnant, and then that one child producing an entire nation of millions of Jewish people is mind-blowing. It tells you that the smallest, as Jesus said, a mustard seed of faith can move mountains, right? You have the smallest trust for God to work in your life. You have the smallest trust, and here... As Sarah has this incredible faith, and Abraham has this faith. But beyond that, their faith was real about heavenly things. Is heaven real to you? It was to Abraham and Sarah. Check this out in verse 13. All these people, now in this context, it's talking about Abraham and Sarah and the other people in chapter 11, but it's all connected to them as the the couple of faith, so to speak. And all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking, what are they looking for? They were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Sarah had faith to trust God that her old dead body could have a son, and that that one son could populate a nation, and that pretty soon, as she was a nomad, her and Abraham, they just lived in tents, uh, in a tent moving around the promised land. They never had a home, a a brick and mortar structure. They lived in tents, which was a picture of them declaring this world is not our home, because heaven They knew they were going to heaven. That God had prepared a heavenly city, a heavenly country for them so that invisible spiritual things were a reality to them. Do you know anybody like that? Is heaven real to you? Do you believe God can do the impossible? Can God bring so much impact through one singular life like yours by faith? And and that's not to put pressure like we got to do something. Abraham and Sarah have no idea how this is all going to unfold. All they had to do is believe God and be intimate. That sounds pretty cool. Let's trust God, honey, and go to bed. Right on. Right? That's pretty easy. That's all they had to do is be obedient in faith. But God was going to do this from that mustard seed of faith, that small step of faith, to trust God for what he was going to do. And that they knew when they died, when she died here, she's going to heaven. When Abraham dies, he's going to heaven. Yes, our bodies are going to be buried in this cave at Machpelah. But this world is not our home. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. There is this this moment where you're going to breathe your last. Your heart is going to stop beating. That very last time, your heart beats. And you're going to open your eyes in heaven. Is that real to you? The reality is, it's not some pie in the sky type of thing. It doesn't matter where you go around the globe, culturally, a backwoods village, it doesn't matter where you go. God has put eternity in your hearts. You know, and I know, no matter how much you might have uh, decry or proclaim in your unbelieving season of life that it doesn't exist, you know deep down, this is not it. This is not the end. It's not over now. That's why it's so tragic for those who are stuck in this humanist perspective because it becomes very nihilistic, a very feudalistic. Because literally if I just have this life to live and this is it, this is all I got, holy cow, that sounds so depressing. And then they're going to put me in a hole and it's all over, worms are just going to eat my body, that's it? There's no eternity? Now that motivates me for a future, doesn't it? Your worldview affects how you move through life. Your spiritual view. So think about them. Hey, faith, hope, and love. They trusted that God was big enough to give them a child. They trusted that God was big enough to fulfill his promise to build a nation. They believed that God was big enough to take their bodies. When this body dies, they are going to get a glorified body in the heavenly realm. That's a lot of faith. It seems almost like a sci-fi movie. But it's the spiritual reality of people of faith throughout the scriptures. And it's the one that fills us with so much hope that we know we are going to see our loved ones again. When Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he is on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah show up and they're having a conversation. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. Peter, James, and John wake up and go, check this out. Peter knows that it's Moses and Elijah. How do we know? They all had name tags. Right? No, he just knows. That's the way heaven's going to be. You're just going to know. Now, he, he knew who Moses was because it's Charlton Heston, but we beyond that, there was a, a knowledge, and these things, the New Testament talks about these things in this this unusual dimension that comes into our physical world and it is in the spiritual world. The beauty of knowing the person you love the most is leaving this place of suffering where there's going to be no more tears. It's such a joy. It's such a relief. When we were taking care of my mom this last year and uh, my brother and sister and I, I took care of her for the last six weeks while she was at home and there's nothing more brutal than watching somebody in cancer when you're taking care of them personally. And I mean, towards it, all of us are just longing for her to breathe her last so that she could be with the Lord. And my mom knew Jesus, knows Jesus, and so she's like, I know Jesus. I'm not afraid to die. But she said, I'm a curious old broad. I want to keep living. And she just had that kind of, you know, brashness about about her life. But my my brother and my sister were all there at at her bedside. And we wanted to be there when she breathed her last. And the hospice nurse said, well, if you guys want to be there right before she passes away, I'm going to give you a sign so that you know what to watch for. Said right before she passes away, she's going to do what we called guppy. And so their mouth, just right at the end, their mouth begins like this, like a guppy. It's like they're just taking their last breaths. And then they breathe their last. And I told my brother and my sister, I said, hey, you guys, mom's starting the guppy here. And just. Ninety seconds later, she was gone. In the midst of all that sorrow and the suffering, and my mom, you know, making you, you can't eat, you can't, you know, you just become a skeleton. And we're all just longing for it to be over for her. In the midst of it, even we would, you know, we're, we're laughing and cutting up about, you know, the the ugliness of all the situation. And yet why was it that we had so much hope? Why was it that we had so much peace? The hospice nurse said, I sense that you guys are people of faith. And I said, yes, you could say that. And she says, I'm so relieved She said, this makes it so much easier when you're people of faith because when you go into homes where there is no faith and it's only a dark hole of death and fear and despair it makes our job so hard to go in there day after day and see people that are absolutely hopeless. See, for you and I there is this Hope that we're going to step into eternity and we're going to see all of our family members that are there. And the older you get, the more people are are gathering, right? I got quite a posse up there right now. When I show up, I'm going to know these people my grandparents and all these different individuals. And the beauty of all of our lives, as I started this story basically thinking of Abraham and Sarah as basically childhood sweethearts, even though they were related and they've been married all these years. All the people that were in their lives that, that would come to faith, no doubt. You know, for us, it's that way. My wife Tammy got to lead both of her grandmothers and her great-grandmother to Jesus all on their deathbed. They all trusted in Jesus. So Evelyn, Louise, And Grandma Tudor are all going to be with Jesus in heaven. And she's going to be able to see him there. And she shared that faith on their deathbed. Each one of them. And my grandparents are there. The only reason I'm up here as a preacher, it's all their fault. It's because they prayed me into the kingdom. And it's strange because Tammy's grandparents and my grandparents knew each other. So, you know, it goes back a lot of generations. And... Yet when we get there, it's gonna be like a family reunion of people of faith. What about those people right now that are not walking with Jesus? Who do you know and love that's not in the kingdom? Who are you praying for? Who do you care about? Who do you wanna see in heaven when you get there? Well, a lot of people are going to be in heaven simply through Sarah and Abraham's life, the father and the princess of faith, so to speak. One last thing. Sarah's got a, a word to, to wives. If, if you've been married for 100 years, do you have some advice for young ladies? I would think so. When I was a young minister, I was about 28, and a lady that had been married 48 years and her husband died, and a man who had been married for 52 years, his wife died, and the two of them got together. Now, we had a rule for premarital counseling, They came, I was 28 years old. And they had over, they had 100 years of marriage experience between the two of them. And they showed up, but I only knew their names. I didn't know how old they were. When they walked in, I'm looking at these senior citizens and I asked them their story and 48 years and 52 years, 100 years of marriage. And I said, well, I think this premarital is all over, but you could give me advice if you would like to give me some advice about, about my marriage and my family. And, this is what Peter tells us. He points to Sarah, and he, he tells ladies that she's the example. And if you want to be a daughter of Sarah, there's something that he wants to emphasize. Now, it's culturally totally inappropriate today, but since you guys are into culturally inappropriate, I'll share it with you. Verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Do not be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfaded beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. He says, ladies, there's basically three thoughts that he shares with ladies, and this is true uh, for all of us in a a broader sense, and that is, if you trust the Lord, ladies, and you develop the inward beauty, because you guys know that you've met beautiful people, that as soon as you spent time with them, they were as ugly as snakes, right, because there's this viciousness that came out of them, but... It says, it's precious in the sight of God, a gentle and a quiet spirit. That doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth in love. It just means there's a gentleness about your interaction with your husband and that you have a respect for the authority that God has placed within the role of a husband. So you're trusting God with all your heart, and you're trusting your husband, and you're developing an inner beauty. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of the stuff on the outside. Right? I'm convinced if the barn needs painting, painting it, Paint it, right? So there's nothing wrong with dealing with the outward things. But, but the inward heart is something that is beautiful in the precious, in the sight of God. And also in the precious sight of your husband. If there can be this interaction where there's a, a faith mixed with respect and an inner beauty as you interact with one another. That's the beauty that I have in my wife, which is such a joy. She's not only beautiful on the outside, but she's beautiful on the inside. And sooner or later, age wins the outward battle. So we can only, though the outward person is perishing, the inward person is renewed day by day in our walk with God. Sarah leaves a legacy for all of us about her faith, And Abraham has to say goodbye. We don't get to his new wife and his new marriage and starting over, you know, when you're, uh, let's see, he is 140 years old and ready for his new honey. We don't get her age. Maybe she was 30. And we have no idea. But to everything, there's a new season. Here as we end this year and start this new year, life and death is a part of the cycle, right? Kids are gonna come into the world, people are gonna go out of the world, but the people of faith have more hope than those who are living in despair without the hope of Jesus, amen? Amen, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, thank you for your faithfulness. Pray that you would strengthen us through um, contemplating, Lord, things that surround our loved ones and funerals and eternity, And it is a reality that shows up on our doorstep. Whether we want it to or not, it's coming for all of us. And so, Lord, I pray that each person could have that simple trust in you, Jesus, that through faith in you, their sins can be forgiven and they have the hope of everlasting life. And to be able to share that with the people we love and to see them in eternity with us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit that leads us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen.